Welcome to Inside India by UTI International. I'm your host, Ben Haywood. Join me as I embark on an exciting journey through the new and modern India. From the Dabawalas to the Tatas and the Ambanis, let's see what the future may hold for the world's largest democracy. In this series, we feature conversations with business and economic leaders who have lived and breathed the story of India as they tell us their version of what makes this such a compelling and exciting growth opportunity in the 21st century. Stay tuned. Buy Now, Pay Later, also known as BNPL, is a financing option that allows you to buy a product or service without having to worry about paying for it in one go and instead financing it over the subsequent weeks and months. Due to the rise of e-commerce and digital payments, low credit card penetration, and rapid increase in the adoption of fintech, many of whom are disrupting traditional financial services business models, the market for BNPL businesses is booming in India. BNPL offers an alternative way of consuming goods and services via the ease of credit and is fast becoming the preferred purchase method among Gen Z consumers and young millennials. Today, we are joined by Lizzie Chapman, CEO and co-founder of Zest Money. Zest Money is India's largest and fastest growing buy now, pay later platform and uses mobile technology, digital banking and AI to make life more affordable for millions of young Indian consumers. Lizzie has continuously been promoting the concept of digital finance and driving its adoption in India. She envisions a future where India has a fully digital economy and every Indian has access to affordable credit. Her passion for the potential of technology to disrupt the delivery of financial services, to me, encapsulates the new India. I'm Ben Hayward, and you're listening to Inside India. Welcome, Lizzie. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Ben. Very excited to be here as well today. Excellent stuff. Well, we'll dive right in. You have a very, very interesting background, and this isn't going to do your journey or your story so far any justice at all. But if you could give us a very short, condensed version of how you've ended up in India running perhaps one of the country's most promising fintechs, that'd be great. No, sure. Happy to. So I've been in India for nearly 11 years now but started in a much more conventional life in London. I actually did my first job after university, was at Goldman Sachs, and that's where I learned all about the financial services industry. I was put in the global banks team, but I had a special passion for India, as did a lot of people in my family. So India had always been somewhere I'd visited and been very, very fascinated by. So I was very fortunate to be able to build it into my career. My mother actually worked in India for a while, so did my father, and did really interesting things like build airports and do voluntary Red Cross type work. So I really had a sort of almost glamorous view, I think, of what it would be like to work in India. Then we had that whole financial implosion of 2008, if you remember. And what was interesting is the Indian banks did hold up very, very well. And that led me to become a very passionate investor in Indian banks with a big endowment. So I spent lots of time roaming around Mumbai, meeting banks and observing how low tech they were in those days. This is like 2008 to 2010. So I got quite obsessed with the idea of how could we bring technology to the financial services industry in India. And that's when I met a company called Wonga which your UK listeners will have heard of, I'm sure. 
Wonga were about to enter the India market. And this was 2011. So I joined Wonga in the international team. And within a few months, I was sent off to Mumbai full time. So I packed my bags and haven't looked back, have not looked back. So happy to tell you what went wrong with Wonga, why we didn't launch in the end in India. But safe to say that's what got me to the country where I fell in love and all of my sort of aspirations and excitement proved to be even more interesting when I had my feet on the ground. And so that's what led to starting Zest Money about six and a bit years ago. I did do a little weird thing in the meantime. I started a hotel as well. So if you want to talk about hospitality in India, happy to take that conversation there. But I think today we'll focus on fintech. Awesome. Yeah. And a couple of things, you know, Wonga and and the hotel and those kind of stuff we can pick up later on. But I think for the purpose of today, we'll focus on Zest Money. And, And as a business, I mean, it's a model that we have seen and we know here in the Western world. Klarna is the clear comparison. So for my listeners, it's it's sort of like the Klarna of India, but I know you can explain it in greater detail. But why is your BNPL or buy now, pay later model slightly different? And yet taking a step back, tell us a little bit more about Zest Money, how you got going, what you're doing today. Yeah, no, that's a good story. So when we came over as Wonga, we got a really privileged opportunity to understand the India market, study the consumer study what was happening in commerce, in retail. And it was very clear, this is sort of 2011, 2012, that you had this massive consumer base adopting digital behaviors very, very quickly. So they were just as addicted to social media as in the West. They were shopping online for the first time. E-commerce was booming. And so were things like online travel. So the online travel agents were exploding. But at the same time, you had a population with almost de minimis credit penetration. So in those days, it was about 15 million credit card holders in the whole country. Today, it's only about 25 million credit card holders. So it hasn't improved a lot. But the point was, there was this massive disconnect. If you were an e-commerce company targeting half a billion people, but you knew that just a handful of them had access to credit how could you really you know, compete on a global scale? So we worked out, and this is really the premise of Zest Money, that by partnering with retailers, we could actually distribute credit much more effectively, much more efficiently, much more cheaply using their existing customer base and their existing demand effectively. And that was really the whole premise. It is very similar to what people like Klarna do I think in the West, it's a very competitive environment. Klarna need to compete with all the biggest credit cards, neobanks, and other copycat BNPL businesses. I think in India, we're very fortunate to have a lot more wide open space. None of the global guys are here. As I said, credit card penetration is very, very low. But most importantly, we have a consumer base here who hasn't been trained on things like credit cards. So remember that 75% of India is under the age of 40, right? They are incredibly young and young people tend to be more open-minded or at least they try more things. And so to build a consumer business or a proposition like this in India is very exciting because you can be truly innovative, try out very, very different, you know, flavors of product and customer adoption is extremely high. So I think that's one thing that differentiates us and allows us to have a lot more fun over here than if we were in Europe. But the other thing is, and this is going to sound very boring, but we also can make a much more sensible business model here. 
because of the lack of competition and lack of credit supply in the economy, what you find is the brands and retailers that want to grow are very happy to subsidize our business. And we get a much greater percentage of our revenue from the brands and the retail network than we would in Europe. And what that means is, and this is a really fundamental piece of our strategy, what that means is we can be the lowest cost of credit to the consumer in the market. And that's really important to us because we do believe that in a country that's just beginning its credit journey, putting the customer at the center is absolutely critical. 100%. And so just a, a very kind of to bring the story to life. So if you're an Indian consumer or that your customer, he or she is going on Flipkart, which is the Amazon of India, they want to buy a phone or a TV or something smaller. I think you do ticket sizes all the way down to $10 or something. And they can effectively buy that TV using Zest money, and then they pay for that TV over 12, 18 months, whatever it is. But crucially, the manufacturer of that TV or the distributor, so Flipkart, they're taking on a lot of the price of that debt. Have I got that right? Or have I put? Yeah, brilliant. No, absolutely. And we go down to even as smaller, even a $1 ticket size for say 15 days or 30 days if you need that. And then all the way up to two years. And that's actually another good point about India that's probably worth drawing out as we try and understand the consumer. It's a very heterogeneous society. So we have people who live just like somebody in London or New York that have all the privileges and access to convenience products. But then we also have uh, segments of society that live more like they're in Mexico or sub-Saharan Africa and everything in the middle, multiple layers in the middle. And so to design credit products that work for such a complex society is non-trivial. You have to have very, very deep technology. And we have a very heavy dependence on using data, both in the risk decisioning, so deciding who to lend to and how much, but also in personalization and matching the right product, the right duration, the right repayment plan to the right customer. Because again, that's, you know, in the best interest of building a sustainable and responsible business. Absolutely. And a couple more questions on this. I think the other beauty of your business model is distributors who are now getting or manufacturers of goods who are now getting to sell their products via this credit model for the first time are realizing that the basket size is is potentially a lot bigger. So they're happy and perhaps why they're happy to pay for some of the costs of that debt too. That was less of a question, more of a statement, I think, plugging your business for you over here. But the other thing I wanted to touch on is default rates. A lot of these people are taking credit on for the first time, borrowing money for the first time. How have you seen, have you been surprised with the numbers and defaults or or not particularly? Yeah, it's interesting. We've actually been very positively surprised. So I think one observation is every culture around the world thinks their people are the most, you know, dishonest and immoral. And so we were always warned when we came to India, you know, you're going to see horrific credit losses, people can't be trusted, blah, blah, blah. Actually, we see almost exactly the same type of credit behavior as we saw in Europe, which is really fascinating. And I think, you know, what it shows is that consumers here, whilst they may have sometimes, you know, volatile financial lives, and to your point, they may be early in their financial journey they're actually very, very excited about the products that we offer. And therefore, once we build a trusted relationship with them and they see the value in a long-term relationship with Zest Money, they invest in it. And that means that they behave very, very well. We do, though, spend a lot of time on education. 
and financial literacy in particular. And during the pandemic, that's something that, you know, helped us stand out because we looked to be one of the most thoughtful, friendly, almost sort of partnership-based lenders in the country. A lot of lenders weren't taking the time to educate their customers during that period about financial literacy. So I think we feel that it's a responsibility that we have in a market like this to, in order to mitigate our risk, we also have to invest in education. Yeah, it's just such a brilliant story. And I'm so excited to kind of watch you guys grow in the in the months and years to come. And actually, I saw a, a string of tweets from you last week, sort of Kanye West, Elon Musk style, where you were rifling off tweets saying that now is it's such a feel it's such a fertile time for India and India's specifically India's fintech scene. And you went into quite some detail. It would be great if you could elaborate on why you think this is and explain to us on the podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. No, so, you know, the macro story, I think, is now well known. We're the fourth largest economy. We're probably the fastest growing economy over the next four years in the world. We have this very young, very high consumption driven population, but at the same time, very, very low household debt to income ratio. Until a few years ago, distribution and delivery of financial products digitally was very challenging. We didn't have the infrastructure, but a very dramatic amount of infrastructure has been built over the last five years, all the way from things like a national identity database that includes biometrics, very, very powerful for things like fraud prevention when you're building products like Zest Money but also including things like having the cheapest mobile phone data on the planet, having the probably most thoughtful and sensible regulatory regime for digital products that I've certainly seen, a very forward-thinking regulator, and basically all of the key pillars of infrastructure that you need to build a healthy financial services market. I think the last two years on top of that then provided this really dramatic catalyst catalyst on two sides. One is that the customer behavior changed really, really quickly. People who were maybe happy to be traditional in their shopping behavior and still do things offline suddenly had to learn online because that was, you know, the lockdown pandemic effect. But the other side of that is that banks got really caught out almost overnight. And because they had depended so heavily on physical infrastructure like branches and agents coming to the house and all of that had to stop they very, very, very quickly embraced the idea of working with fintech or tech companies. And so one of the things that I think differentiates India and why I get so excited and a bet big long term is that this will be a market that actually scales even bigger and faster than other fintech markets because bank and tech work together. It's a real win-win kind of alignment in India where the banks need the tech companies, the tech companies need the banks. And there isn't all of that antagonism, like, you know, bank versus tech that you see in other markets. So that's why I get really excited. I spent the whole of last week actually with our bank partners in Mumbai, and they just believe so much in what we can co-create. And I haven't seen that anywhere else in the world. Yeah. And actually, that was going to be a question of mine is, is how do you stop the banks from eating your lunch? But it sounds as though the answer is, is working with the banks to co-create. Exactly, exactly. And that's my point. I think because Banks here are incredibly good at managing balance sheets. They're very good at working with regulators. They're very good at doing the traditional things banks do. 
but they just don't pretend to love working with young digital customers. It's not what they've historically done. And so because of that, they actually are very, very open-minded about working with technology companies. And what that means is there's a very clear kind of roles and responsibilities. We will touch the customer, the bank will do things like the balance sheet and regulatory interface. So it, it works. It just works really, really well. And that's what I think it will take to get to proper scale in a country as big as this. Yeah. And actually, another question I had for you, and this is a podcast, so it's, it's good that I've got a lot of questions lined up. But, you know, the Indian banking and finance industry, is, it's, it's always talked about as one of the kind of most exciting growth stories globally. You mentioned it when you were back in your Goldman days, you got very excited about it. Just can you give the listeners a sense of how long you think this growth runway is? How sustainable is this growth runway? We spoke about those stats earlier, 25 million credit cards in a, in a country of 1.43 billion people. So it must be pretty long. <laughs> well, another way to look at it, there's uh, nearly 600 million people using WhatsApp every day, right? So 600 million people who are very digitally savvy, who are communicating often in English, which is unusual in the world but do not have financial products that you know match their experience. What's really interesting, just to mention, this is a good point to mention it, the government launched their own payments network in India called UPI, which is really similar to Venmo or PayPal in the rest of the world, but actually created by the government for zero cost to the end user, the customer or the merchant. And every bank in the country has plugged into it. So I can send money real time to any merchant, any friend, 24-7, zero cost. That works spectacularly well and it's exploding. I think last month there were 15 times, like 15x more transactions on UPI than on card. So that's how much it's taken off. But a lot of the distribution and delivery of that payment mechanism is through fintech companies, including, by the way, Google Pay, of course. But what that shows is that when the banks and tech companies work together, only then you see spectacular growth. So it's been a win-win because the banks have seen more low-cost transactions, which is great for their network, but the tech companies have kind of powered that with their infrastructure. So I think we've got many decades of this sort of symbiotic relationship playing out as long as people approach it with the right mindset, which is one of partnership, not exploitation on either side. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really fascinating. Now, um, we had your good friend on the show a couple of weeks ago, Ben Merton. Interesting story. And he, first and foremost, he is a, a bull on the India story as well, um, but perhaps slightly differently to most. So he's quite skeptical of the Indian consumer, as I'm sure you know and debate, spent hours debating about over there in Bangalore. But I want you to kind of come out in defense of the Indian consumer or the Indian consumption story. Clearly, your business is completely centered on the growth of the Indian consumer. So how would you kind of refute his comments or, or push back when he challenges you on it? <laughs> I'm hoping Ben's not listening. Well, he can pick me up on this in the pub next week. No, so listen, there is no Indian consumer. That's point one. Hopefully I've explained already, but you know, it's a very, very complicated market, not just by income level, but even language spoken, cultural behavior, religious behavior. We're a very, very, very complex demographic. So I'm always a little bit alarmed when anyone makes sweeping generalizations about the Indian consumer. But what, you know, what is happening and what is really driving a lot of businesses like mine is the Indian consumer is becoming very, very, very demanding. 
and very clear about what they want. They are absolutely the new kid on the block globally in terms of dictating tastes, uh, behaviors, fashions. And that's really exciting because discerning customers are great for building products for. Um, what's really changed in the last five years or like since we've been in operation is I think we've moved from a very sort of basic need set where customers would work with Zest Money and buy a mobile phone or buy their first laptop or whatever. So much so that now in the last 18 months, we work with customers who just want to buy lipsticks or fashion or pet food. Uh, there's a pet explosion going on. So what's happening is consumers are becoming far more discerning in what they want. They have very high expectations from brands and they spend a lot of time digesting content from around the world and then being very, very you know, thoughtful in what they want. It's a common myth that the Indian consumer is obsessed with price and discounts, right? People love to say that Indian consumers won't pay for anything. And I think that's 100% wrong. In our experience, Indian consumers will pay for value for money. They have a very, very high value bar and they really know the difference between a good or bad experience or product. So we actually have a huge amount of respect for, for our consumers. And I think, you know, we feel that the behaviors are changing so dramatically that you can never stand still and you always have to be evolving as a product and as a brand to be speaking to that consumer. But the brands that invest in listening and understanding the Indian consumer do phenomenally well. And I'm not just talking about homegrown bands. You know, we've got a big surge of new domestic fashion, lifestyle, content brands coming up, really incredible brands. But even the global brands that spent time on the ground, slowly learning and understanding, like IKEA is a good example that comes to mind. They've really adapted their brand, their product, their proposition for the Indian consumer, and they're seeing phenomenal success. What doesn't work is copy-paste. So you cannot come to India and assume that a product you launched anywhere else in the world will automatically work here. A huge amount of adaptation is needed. But uh, once you've got it right, it can be a really incredible growth story. Yeah, no, we learned that with um, Jasper Reed, who does the pizzas and the burgers. Ah, brilliant. No yep. Yeah, he's had to completely change his what we would conceive to be a burger. But now he, I think he's, he's really beginning to kick on, which is great. And you touched on it there, actually, but you must have some phenomenal insight on the kind of consumption patterns. And, and what do you do with that? How do you use that, those insights? Yes, we do. We, we have a lot of data. Obviously, we see a lot of customer data. We even see merchant data. And we really use that data to personalize more and more and more to make our products more relevant to the customer, but also help merchants make their products more relevant to the customer. We'll all know from using Amazon or any big marketplace what irrelevant product placement feels like. But the more data that we have about a customer, the more we can personalize, even down to things like language. So we found that one of the reasons for our success in collections or getting the money back is that we can really, really, really personalize the messaging. And I don't just mean literally the language. I mean, even the tone. So we know what time of day certain cohorts of people are available and will respond. We know that some people just need one little push notification, but others need three or four emails. So all of that data goes into personalizing the product and experience, I think, in a way that a traditional financial institution would struggle to do. 
Yeah, very cool. I guess a couple of quote unquote tougher questions now, but you know, nonetheless, I hope quite interesting. I guess the first one, sort of on a moral level, do you get much pushback from investors and, and ethical bodies? Clearly, a lot of these consumers that we've just spoken about, they're going to be taking on credit for the first time. I know you mentioned you're big into education, which is great. But yeah, do you get a lot of pushback? And we can tie that back into because I know there was a story with Wonga and perhaps where you didn't launch. And they've got certainly here in the Western world, a slightly different image, I think, to the image that you've built Zest Money around. So yeah, what kind of moral or ethical pushback, if any, do you get? Yeah, no, it's it's a valid question. I think there are two parts to this, maybe. One is literally just the product and pricing that we offer. So we are by far the cheapest form of credit for 99% of customers. Very few customers in India could access cheaper credit than the version we offer. And that's very different to Wonga. Wonga had a very, very different pricing strategy, as I'm sure you know. And I won't debate the pros and cons of that, but just put it like this simplistically, for us, a stated goal was to always be the cheapest form of credit to the consumer. And we're proud of that. And we actually think almost the opposite, that we sometimes save the customer from going into the hands of loan sharks or other gray market versions of credit. But I think, no, the second point, and maybe more important is, philosophically, we're trying to build a very, very long-term sustainable business. And I think that when you have that strategy and it's all about a long game, You never want to do anything that would put your customer at risk, especially in a credit business. It's in our interest to keep them financially sound and healthy in order to make our business successful and lower risk in the long run. So we take our responsibility very, very seriously. We're one of the only lenders in the country that has an obsession and an internal policy around affordability. So we will never give a customer more credit than we are absolutely certain they can afford. And even traditional lenders don't have such policies. There's there's not a regulatory regime that supports that. So we've almost gone above and beyond to be the most squeaky clean or the most responsible lender in the market. And that's actually proving to be a competitive advantage. So banks, partners, brands, you know, big brands like Apple, Samsung, prefer to work with us because of that reputation and the fact that they know we're not going to exploit the customer. So we've we've turned being the gig guy into our sort of personal strategy and it really pays off in a market like this, for sure. I can imagine. And yeah, what are the longer term plans for Zest Money? I mean, is it, I think you've mentioned to me before, there could be 10 Zest Monies in India and, and all of you guys would have plenty of market share to go after. So is there plans for Zest Money outside of India? I don't know. Am I even allowed to ask if you have listing plans or or there's been an explosion of IPOs in India in the last couple of years? Yeah. What's the longer term plan? No, you're right. So I think we feel that, and maybe even following on from your last point, we believe we're doing a very big beneficial service to the Indian consumer by giving them their first taste of credit, but in a very responsible way. They're building up their credit history with us. And that is enabling them to build better long-term financial decisions. And eventually, you will see us going into spaces like personal loans, home loans, all the other types of credit product that we see gaps in this market where there's just an absence of you know, good, affordable, transparent, responsible solutions. 
So we definitely want to continue on the journey to being a really loved financial brand to this customer base, the young digital customer base. And there's a lot we could do there. So I think that's going to keep us busy for a few decades. But I won't, you know, you won't be surprised to know that we obviously have global dreams as well. We do have an office in Singapore and we are beginning to look at some of the adjacent markets because some are very similar places like Philippines, Vietnam have some similarities and overlaps from a consumer behavior perspective. So we would love to go into one of those geographies in the next year or so. But yeah, we just want to keep growing sustainably and listening to our customers. Whether we become public or not, really, that depends on the markets. It's a very volatile time, as you can see. So we're not in a hurry for the sake of it. We'll see what the macroeconomic environment looks like. But the good news is we are on track to being a a sustainable business model and one that doesn't, you know, only depend on private equity funding. And again, we think that's the right thing when you're playing a long game. No, absolutely. And life beyond, you know, deep into the future, is, is it you feel like you're very ingrained in the Indian way of life? You, you mentioned you have a or had a property there, hotel there. Do you see yourself in India longer term or? Oh, absolutely. Is the UK calling on it? Yeah. No, India is an amazing place to build a business build many businesses. My bigger problem is that every week I think of a new business model. So that would keep me busy for many years. But it's also just a really inspiring place to be, I think, creatively. I think being around so many young people, apart from the fact it makes you feel very old, you just constantly feel you know, inspired and excited about the future because people are young and optimistic and opportunistic. And that to me is just a really, really exciting place to be. And obviously we have the best cuisine in the world. So, you know, where else would I want to go? <laughs> yeah, you can go and get one of Jasper's burgers. <laughs> no, I'm, uh, I'm messing. Two final questions. One, I feel like I almost have to ask, and I, I don't like asking this question because I think the minute you start talking about female and male, you automatically put barriers up. And, uh, you know, you're doing an amazing job with a, an amazing business. But how has your experience been as a foreign female founder in a market like India? It's yes. um, quite unique controversial question. Yeah, no, look, I think <laughs> I'm going to break the stereotypes. Let me maybe give you a count of you. I think it would be a very cliched thing to say that it's tough to be a woman in India. And obviously it is in, in many sections of society and specific areas. But certainly my experience and my view of particularly the financial services industry is that it's actually very conducive for female founders and female business leaders a lot of banks came from a history of having government ownership where a percentage of women were mandated actually to work at the highest levels. And so there's a history of having very senior women in financial services in India. What that means is there has been a sort of culture creation, I would say, of respecting women, of respecting balance and respecting family life. And so we don't have that whole kind of pub culture or networking on the golf course. None of that really exists in India, which I think is a massive advantage as a woman. And so I've never felt that it was in any way detrimental. I've actually felt very, very accepted, very welcomed. And I think it's actually been harder internationally, interestingly. The only pushback we've ever felt as female founders has been from US hedge funds or you know investors not from Indian participants in our ecosystem. So I think, yeah, I'd really like to like bust that myth. I think this is a great place to build a business as a woman. I think people are generally very, very respectful of women. And it's a very unique culture. 
that prioritizes family values and those kind of old-fashioned things, but makes it quite conducive to female-led businesses. 100%. And actually, even thinking out loud here, when I was in India, and I was only there for a very short amount of time, but both of my bosses, my two immediate bosses were both women. Very, very impressive and competent. And so, yeah, I, I absolutely, that resonates. The very final question I'm going to ask, and I ask it to every guest that comes on the podcast, and I think we've done a lot of myth busting already in this episode, so maybe we've run out of things to say, but what one thing would you like my listeners to go away thinking differently about India? What myth would you bust? Ben, for instance, said it's not the land of call centers, (laughs) which I think is, is a great point. But what would you say? What one myth would you bust? Yeah, I would probably say any assumption you've made about India is probably wrong. So anybody that's listening and and has a sort of mental image of a call center or a yoga retreat or a, you know, spiritual temple, please rip it up immediately. Come and have a look. You will see some of the most futuristic, forward-thinking consumers on the planet and some of the most interesting cultural developments are happening here. So even the way, you know, to touch on the earlier question, the way that feminism is evolving in India is very different, very nuanced, very, very futuristic, I would say, compared to what I see in the West. So my yeah, biggest message would be rip up any preconceived notions you have about this country, come and spend time on the ground and understand how quickly it's changing. So a year is a very long time in India. Things are moving super fast and the future is very, very bright. Wonderful place to leave it. And thank you so much, Lizzie, for um, all of your thoughts and coming on the podcast today. Look forward to, as I said earlier, watching Zest Money grow in, in the months and years to come and hopefully seeing you face to face this year if I, if I get over to India. Yay, definitely come and pay us a visit. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. You have been listening to Inside India with me, Ben Haywood. If you like what you have heard, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or indeed, wherever you might listen. Don't forget to leave a review and a rating and tell us about your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode in two weeks time. Until then, stay safe.